Hello, and welcome to episode five of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb, and this is the Mikey Intern Reunion Show. And I am so excited to be here with my very close friends uh, that I made working on Mikey Sherrill's reelection campaign uh, this past summer. Uh, so I'm very excited to have them here today. And the first thing that we're going to do is they're all going to go around and introduce themselves. So Mia, would you like to start off? Sure. Hi, my name is Mia Payone. I'm a freshman government major at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, I'm Darcy Schleifstein. I'm a freshman at Tulane University studying political science and social policy and practice. My name is Bianca Walder. I'm a freshman at Penn State University, and my majors are Recreation, Park, and Tourism Management and Political Science. My name is Sienna. I go to Chatham High School, and I'm a senior. Sienna is our resident young person. So again, these are all the friends I made this summer, and it's this is kind of, I think, our first time we were talking about, our first time kind of being all together since the campaign ended in November. So very excited to have us all here together. So the first thing that we want to talk about, obviously, this has been a crazy week in politics. Um, so as we all know, the impeachment trial just ended this past week, and it was a tumultuous ending to this trial. Um, if you watched it or you didn't, basically what ended up happening um, is on the last day of the trial, the Democrats tried to push to hear witnesses at the trial. There was a whole lot of negotiations that were going on, and ultimately what happened even though it looked like they had the votes to go through with it, uh, they ended up pulling back on that request. And then they just went basically straight into closing arguments and then the vote. So this was controversial for many reasons. So first thing that I wanna talk about with you guys. So Darcy, what do you think about how the trial ended? Do you think that the Democrats pushing to call witnesses and then pulling their request at the last minute was a good thing, a bad thing? What's your take? I think honestly, it could have gone both solutions, either calling witnesses, not calling witnesses. The end was a foregone conclusion. You weren't going to get 11 votes um, at the end to convict. I know watching the trial um, and watching the vote, I was surprised. I'm, I go to school in Louisiana. My senator is Bill Cassidy. Um, so here in Louisiana, that was a shock, the way he voted. And I actually was just watching for coming on um, an interview with Walter Isaacson, who's a professor here at Tulane, um, him talking about why he voted the way he did. And he was like, well, like we have the largest per capita um, number of veterans. And if young people here in Louisiana can take an oath to, to protect the constitution every single day and put their lives on the line, why can't I follow my oath? And he is getting a lot of criticism here in Louisiana for his vote. He won um, re-election like, by a landslide. We do what um, Georgia does, and we have a jungle primary, so kind of everyone goes at it at once. And then he won with 59% of the vote. So it was a pretty clean win. And everyone was like, what is he doing? And he kind of was just coming at it with like, I listened to both sides, and now I'm here. But he was only one of, I want to say, six or seven Republicans that voted. But... Yeah, that's really interesting. And it is, if you look, it was seven Republicans that ended up uh, ended up voting to convict. And like all seven of those Republicans, some of them were like, you know, technically moderate, like Susan Collins. And then a lot of the other ones that were more surprising, like Bill Cassidy, people who like probably aren't going to run for re-election re or just won their new terms, you know, this past election. So it is definitely interesting to, um, to see how those all, are all playing out and like how the Republican party is, is changing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, the whole trial in general was disappointing because um, like we all knew from the start that he wasn't going to get convicted, even though there was a clear violation of the constitution and the oath that um, the former president took. Um, for office and that all, all, most all the Republicans and all the people that didn't vote to convict him um, basically did a political calculation and realized that they were going to probably get primaried and they would rather protect their seat than um, uphold their oath to the Constitution um, and hold people accountable. So I think that is extremely disappointing. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Again, like I've talked about this on the show a lot in the last couple of weeks, the Republican Party itself has this like chokehold on them by Donald Trump, like former president. Um, And, you know, he hasn't really put his own like take on a lot of this um, so far. And then I don't know if you guys saw this, but he released a statement about Mitch McConnell, which, by the way, we should probably talk about Mitch McConnell and his complete hypocrisy. basically calling him like a political hack and saying that he is not the right person to be leading the Republican Party. Uh, And that's a very interesting division between the two of them, because, again, if you guys weren't paying attention, Mitch McConnell voted to acquit Donald Trump, but then made a whole speech basically saying that Donald Trump was guilty. So, yeah, what are you guys' takes on that and Mitch McConnell and his potential failed leadership of the Republican Party and the Senate at large? Um, I guess I feel like Mitch McConnell kind of does what he always does, where he really takes the easy way out and he'll say all these things, make all these essentially empty gestures being like, yes, Trump was guilty, but he's always going to vote in the way that's going to protect him and his seat the most because Mitch McConnell cares more about himself and holding the power that he does than upholding our democracy and our constitution. Um, so I feel like with him, it was, you know, definitely a little disappointing, but really not surprising at all um, because the voters are going to look more at how he voted than what he says after. So. And that kind of, kind of goes into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is what do you think is going to happen kind of in the historical context? So looking back on this trial, however many years from now, do you think that there's going to be any larger implications or do you think this is just going to be more status quo? Sienna, do you have any feelings on that? Yeah, I mean, as I've like gone through like high school and stuff and, you know, you hear about different things in history and you're like, how did they ever get away with that? It could be something like massive, like the Holocaust or like drug trades or something, anything like that. And you're like, that's, you know, not feasible how they got away with it and how they weren't prosecuted for it. And I think that's how a lot of people are going to see this. Like when they read about it in history class and a push or whatever, they're going to go, Oh my God, how did he get away with this? I think a lot of people are going to lose their trust in impeachment after this. Like we all were too young, not even born when Bill Clinton was impeached and we all kind of, and, and we're all, we work for, for a Democrat here. Like we all, I don't look at Trump and we're like, this is not the man we would have voted for, but like Bill Clinton broke the law and we all kind of sit here and we're like, how did he get away with it? Like he clearly broke the law. And I think people after us are going to kind of just look at it and be like, well, why do we still have impeachment if it has never worked? I feel like another good point to bring up is like us growing up in the age of Trump, growing up politically, that is like um, we were all born during Bush's first term. We grew up um, with Obama. And then when Trump got into office, all of us, sorry, Sienna, we're freshmen in high school. Um, So um, it's just interesting, like the age after him, like what our generation, what um, people who are on the other side that are our age, like how will this affect them? How will this affect, um, you know, if they run for office later, will they, you know, try to be like Donald Trump or be like um, other prominent Republicans like, you know, Ted Cruz or someone else? Yeah, for sure. The, the new generation of Republicans running for office it's going to be telling. And I think like we are kind of seeing with like Madison Cawthorn, who's really young and is new elected official. And he's, you know, he's trying to separate himself from Trump, but at the same time, he's really holding on to all those same really radical viewpoints. So I think that's a, a really good point. And, you know, the only way that we'll be able to see how history treats this whole situation is to, you know, see how history treats the situation long-term. And I think that, I think it was Darcy who made this point about the fact that impeachment is no longer like a feasible power of the legislative branch. Uh, And I've seen a lot of people kind of making that same point. And so it's interesting to see how if if there's this really stark, clear partisan divide that is making this, this trial that should be kind of an open and shut case not work anymore, has partisanship completely destroyed 
you know, our ability to govern long term. And that's a pretty dark take. But, you know, again, I think it's there's the only way we can see how this is all going to turn out long term is to actually see. So thank you for um, talking with me about the impeachment. I felt we needed to to bring it up because it happened and it was extremely chaotic. Um, I really had so much schoolwork to do that day. And instead, I just watched them argue, um, which, you know, is a typical poli-sci major thing to do. So. So now we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about our experience on Mikey Sherrill's reelection campaign in 2020. Uh, so Bianca, would you just take us through a little bit of what we all did, some of our responsibilities on the campaign? Um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about your experiences. Sure. Um, so we were actually all team leads. Mikey had a lot of interns this campaign because it was virtual. Um, and we were all in charge of smaller groups of people. Um, and some of our responsibilities included um, direct voter contact. So that's just like phone calls. Um, and then we all had to organize weekly events um, with volunteers to make more phone calls. Um, and then some of us got to do some special projects like coordinating lawn sign distribution, setting up lawn signs um, and helping out with um, are like drive-in rallies or other special events like that. Yes, we made a lot of phone calls um, over those months. I think a lot of us started in like the April, May zone um, and we didn't stop until November and we made so many calls. I think Sienna, do you remember how many calls you made throughout that entire time frame? I made, I think almost 12,000 calls <laughs> throughout that time frame calls yeah. and texts and okay. it is just, like absolutely wild. Also like surprising plus though, I've gotten a lot more comfortable like talking to people on the phone. Like if you can talk to a volunteer who's like very anti-Mikey, then you can kind of do anything. Absolutely. I feel this. Sorry, Bianca, you go ahead. I'm so bad at this. Oh my God. Um, a lot of very rude text messages were received by me in particular and other people, but yeah. I think Bianca was going to have the FBI called on her and the president. So like Trump was still the pre obviously was still the president at this point. And before, like we wanted to diversify how we were reaching out to voters. So we were texting them. And this is before we got into outvotes. So we were using like our personal phone numbers and like we were having to deal with like people reporting our numbers as spam and like them screwing up our phones for a couple of days. And Bianca once reaches out to this guy and he like sends this rant of like, I am reporting you to the FBI and the president for voter fraud. And we all kind of just sat there, looked at each other and started dying because it was the most bizarre response you could have got. Like um, I had, sorry, I had a woman I was on the phone with and I was, you're trying to explain how mail-in ballots work to really old people is one of the worst things I've ever done. It's terrible. I mean, I love the campaign, go Mikey, but it was terrible. And I had this woman, so she's like, okay, so I'll submit my mail-in ballot and then I'll go vote again at my polling location. And I had to explain to her, no, ma'am, that's voter fraud. And then she got mad and hung up on me. So that's that's just one memorable call. Um, to go back to Darcy's point, um, the same guy told me that my mother raised me wrong and that I was going to be in jail um, with my boss in the next cell over. Um, and someone else received a text telling them to repent to Jesus and that their um, alignment with the Democratic Party was killing innocent children. Yeah, yeah, the important people, thing to note um, with all of this is that like what we're doing is like perfectly legal. When you uh, like register to vote, you put your phone number and all of that is like public domain. So all of these people being like, you're committing crimes. You can't like take me off your list. Like, I, how did you get this number? Like, it, it's, it's all public information. Um, and so, yeah, we've received a lot. There's a lot of very interesting people in New Jersey's 11th Congressional District. We love them all, but some of them are a little bit more angry than others. Yeah, people definitely have no shame um, saying whatever they want when they're behind the comfort of texting on their phones. Because um, I know in the past when I've canvassed or even made phone calls, people tend to be at least a little more 
nice because they can see you or hear your voice, but over text, people were definitely very brutal, though I will say it really brought a lot of the interns together and it was definitely a good bonding moment since most of us didn't go to school together, didn't know each other, and I feel like we all really started to become friends when everyone was sending these crazy texts they'd receive into the group me, and I feel like that was really what started to build this great bond between a lot of the interns on the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Bianca mentioned this a little bit, but I was wondering, uh, Darcy, if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, another one of our responsibilities was finding volunteers and then training volunteers and running phone banks. Um, and if you could just comment a little bit about what that experience was like and, you know, what it was like kind of being a leader for other volunteers. So as a former volunteer, I actually started out with Mikey as a volunteer in 2018 and then was like, hey, this is cool. Why don't I become an intern? And because we couldn't just meet up in the office like we used to, it was calling through our lists of people who'd volunteered in 2018 and been like, hey, do you want to come and make calls? And it was a lot of it was harder and easier at the same time. One, because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Like it's not like everyone has to drive their kid to soccer on a Saturday morning and can't be um, in an office making phone calls for your local congressional race because you got to go pick up your kid from soccer and then get them lunch and then drive them somewhere else. It was also a lot harder because it was like, how are we getting in touch with people that we normally would get in touch with in person, uh, kind of just standing out on the street in the middle of Morristown, like, hey, do you want to make calls for a congressional candidate? But then it's like, we're dealing with Zoom. And I think all of us, most of us are college students. All of us had Zoom classes or Google Meet classes or Microsoft Teams classes. But trying to explain to very elderly volunteers how to use Zoom was very difficult. And so not only is it just difficult to get them into the door, just to get them to make calls, because not everybody is as engaged as we are, but it's getting them on Zoom, training them how to do it and use our softwares when it's not like you can just say, hey, give me your phone and let me do it for you. And then we you can start making calls. It was... It, you kind of saw both of these on like this virtual organizing. Like you could totally get through the campaign completely virtual. We did it. Is it a lot more challenging? Yeah. But it also, I think you can get to people that we didn't get to back in 2018 because they're just, who, who was leaving their house? That is a very good point and kind of brings me on to my next topic of conversation, uh, which is, kind of comparing and contrasting 2018 to 2020, um, because they were very different elections. One, 2020 obviously was virtual, plus it was a re-election campaign. 2018, Mikey was a brand new candidate, um, and we were kind of starting from the ground up. And Mia and I actually, I, I misspoke when I introduced us. Mia and I met many, many years ago. We grew up together. Um, but me and I also did the 2018 campaign together as well. So me, I was wondering if you could comment on kind of what you think are the biggest differences besides the obvious between the two campaigns. Yeah, so um, I guess starting out in 2018, both Emily and I were pretty new to the world of campaigns and all of that. Um, but a big push besides making the usual phone calls every day was we did a lot of canvassing and training volunteers to go out and canvas door to door every day, um, especially as we got closer to the election, which obviously we could not do in 2020. Um, and I think because there was one so many interns on the campaign in 2018 and it was pretty much just phone calls and canvassing, um, there was definitely less opportunities for special projects and leadership and stuff like that, which was something I really liked getting to do was helping to lead a team of other interns, especially those who were new in 2020. So that was really great. Um, but I feel like it was really interesting just watching 
this campaign completely shift from the original game plan that had helped them win in 2018 to having to find a completely new plan to win again in 2020 with big strategies such as canvassing as well as other big in-person events such as their huge Joe Biden event that had hundreds of people. They couldn't really do stuff like that anymore. So it was really interesting just watching the campaign shift to an all virtual platform and seeing how they were still able to be successful with that. Absolutely. And I, you know, in the, in New Jersey, 11th congressional district, um, it's really interesting because there's a very strong grassroots team there. Um, a lot of volunteers who are like really, really active um, and so I know everyone's, everyone who is on this video call is celebrating all these volunteers because they are our best friends. We love them so much. Um, and trying to figure out how to re-engage those people who were so committed in 2018 to 2020 was definitely a huge challenge. And it was very interesting to watch the campaign staff kind of work through those things. And that fact that a lot of our bosses we've never met in person, but really have these like strong relationships with and all of all of our intern friends that we had, I didn't meet, except for me, I, or in Siena, I didn't meet like Bianca or Darcy until like pretty much election day. Um, so it's a very, yeah, definitely a very interesting implication for the future of campaigning. And uh, I, you know, I think a turnout was not as expected in 2020, um, especially like on a national level. And people are attributing that to the fact that there wasn't a lot of in-person canvassing, which is kind of like the biggest turnout driver in like modern campaigning. Um, but yeah, so I was just wondering, Sienna, if you have thoughts on the campaign strategy that was used on a national level for 2020 and whether we should have been leaning more into like diversifying our outreach strategies or whether the outreach we were doing actually works. I mean, just for like the sanity of the interns on every campaign across the country, some diversification away from phone calls would have been nice. Um, as much as we were all happy to do it, uh, it did get a little bit monotonous. Um, so I think it would have gotten people more engaged as interns and as volunteers if there were more things to do the way there used to be. Um, but I, I think that for being like we started in April, May, and we were like new to the pandemic as it were. And I think for being so new, at least Mikey's campaign adapted really, really well. And I think that was kind of like the best we could have hoped for, especially at the beginning. And looking back on it now, um, I'm sure there are more things we could have done to make things more fun and more interactive and gotten more people engaged. But for the time, for being so new to this, I think it was, it was at least a, a really good starting point for everything and we can build off of it for sure in the future, not just in NJ11, but across the whole country. I think the biggest piece though, that we saw with different campaigns and diversifying is here in the South, if COVID doesn't really exist, uh, depending on who you talk to. Um, so we had like with our Senate election um, this November, we had in-person canvassing, like people were knocking on doors, masked up of course, but like if we did that in NJ11, people would lose their minds. Like I, I can genuinely like imagine, like if you went to a Chatham, a Randolph, a Morristown and started knocking on people's doors saying you were from the Mikey Sherrill campaign, people would go ballistic that you were knocking on their door in the middle of a global pandemic, not knowing where you've been. And I think it really depended on the context. Could we, like, I think for our region and especially with how strict the New Jersey COVID restri um, restrictions were, a lot of what we were doing was the best we could. I think, could we have diversified it a little more? Absolutely. But I, and of course we loved our phone calls. We loved our text banks, but I think, depending on where you were within the country, you got to get that in-person canvassing and got to do a little more in-person stuff. I think COVID really threw a wrench, obviously threw a wrench in all of this. I think COVID threw more like a, a concrete, can you hear me? Oh, okay, I thought you were gonna hear me. Um, Through more of like a concrete cement, um, brick into the mix, a little bit bigger than a wrench, honestly, in my opinion. 
Um, but I was going to talk about how I think one of the best things that we did as a campaign was create a student social media push. Um, I think that really helped. Um, basic, I was actually a big part of that. We um, created, um, you know, content that like, you know, like the Instagram, like slide stories. We did some of those. We would do like memes and we would also DM people um, and ask them like, hey, are you registered to vote? If you're not, like, click on this link and we'll help you register to vote um, and things like that. So I think that was really successful and um, should be implemented post-COVID and in other campaigns. Yeah, going off what Bianca said, I know we also did a Instagram live Q&A with Mikey where um, I was asking Mikey some different questions sent in by students from the district about issues that they care about. And we had lots of students from the area tune in. And I think, I mean, we are the up and coming generation of voters soon to be the new leaders of this country. So I think it is really important to start getting students engaged while they're still in high school. And I think the Mikey campaign did do a really good job of really getting the younger people engaged as well. Yeah, I think bringing up the, the innovation of different virtual events that campaign, our campaign and campaigns all across the country did was also, it's really a great point to bring up. Um, that is definitely something that I've observed over the past almost year of the pandemic, if you can believe it, we're almost at the one year anniversary. Um, that people have really said, all right, we can't be in person. We can't do all the things we used to do. Let's figure out how we can do this in a safe way. Um, and there were so many great events that the campaign put on, um, you know, like, like the Instagram Live, like um, there was several events with uh, like other leaders from around the community. There was a, um, uh, like a women's caucus basically event where they brought in women leaders from around the district and kind of had like a joint campaign appearance. Um, I'm blanking now. Oh, there was the the uh, drive-in rally the day before the election, which was so much fun. Um, and while in-person rallies are great and like such a fun way to like kind of be together and and support a candidate, there was something really amazing about the drive-in rally and having everyone honking their horns when uh, Mikey was speaking. Um, yeah, so that was like a really exciting thing to 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 observe and the innovation of these events that I think might last longer than the pandemic because um, it made the whole campaign a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Where like people might not go drive out to go stand at a rally for um, a couple hours, but sure, they'll log on to a Zoom call and they'll watch people speak for a few hours. So I, I think that that's an interesting conversation to bring up in terms of what components of this virtual campaign might last beyond, you know, what we, what, however long the pandemic will last. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? I think that for sure, the one thing I hope goes back to normal is get out the vote because get out the vote and get out the early vote over Zoom were tough. It was very long days and it was a lot of just staring at a computer and I don't really know why, but most of our volunteers are older and there is a certain generational gap. And like everybody else was saying, if you can't like take their phone out of their hand and just try to help them, it becomes very taxing. Um, but some things I thought were really, really cool. Like when we got Governor Murphy to come on a Zoom, like that was awesome. Like that's something we never, where we, it would be unlikely to happen in person or it'd be more of a debacle to get done. And um, so I think there are definitely benefits to both, but get out the vote, I really hope goes back to normal. Yeah, get out the vote. I ran a staging location. And normally with staging locations, you're in someone's garage, like somewhere in the district, like with a bunch of lawn signs, bunch of clipboards with addresses, and you kind of just take a clipboard and go. The virtual staging locations were tiring because you basically just sat on a Zoom and made sure everyone was doing their calls and everyone was okay in asking questions. And I think the one thing that we haven't touched on yet, the difference between 2018 and 2020, is we had an incumbent congresswoman at this point. So not only are we dealing with the her record, which we are all very proud of Congresswoman Cheryl's record, 
But since she was elected, she's she's had to do a lot of stuff that we never thought she was going to do. She voted for an, an to impeach Donald Trump. We had a pandemic. And even with that, like with campaign finance laws, we'd all sit on the phone talking to voters today and you'd get and part and a lot due to just the failure in on the federal level. You'd get people call, like you'd speak to and they're like, I haven't gotten my unemployment check. I haven't gotten this. Like my my family member is sick and I can't and the hospitals, I can't see that. And the worst part of all of this, and it kind of it gave me a sense of wow, we of really that we were helping real people is that we couldn't do really do anything on the campaign end. All we had to say was, I'm so sorry to hear that. I can't help you. Can I direct you to the district office? And it it sucked that like there are people there like I don't have my unemployment checks. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you're sitting there like and you so want to help these people. Like because this pandemic is awful. And you just can't. Yeah, I um uh over the summer during all the Black Lives Matter protests, I got I remember getting a text from this guy and he was like, I'm a black man living in Morris County and I'm like scared to drive my car. Like, I don't want to get, you know, pulled over, you know, assaulted by the police or something like that. And it's just, it's really difficult because, you know, you can say I'll direct you to the district office. Here's their number, but it's hard to not be able to help them immediately. So to Darcy's point, I think there was a little bit of that kind of frustration level. Yeah, I've literally had multiple volunteers where I've called the number um, and another family member would pick up and I'd ask for their name and they'd be like, oh, so that person died. And it'd be like a young person. And it's just like, you're just shocked. You're like, wow, I'm calling for you to volunteer on a congressional campaign. And this person literally died. Like, it just really humbles you. And it's horrifying and terrible. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting that you bring up the divide between campaigning and governing, um, because there is there's so there's so little that we can do that we can physically do to help people uh, beyond hopefully get someone reelected who will implement policies who will help those people, um, and that's a really interesting dichotomy to think about. And I think kind of this is changing the topic a little bit, but going back to Darcy's conversation about campaigning specifically on her record. Um, we had a lot of questions about um, Mikey's relationship with Nancy Pelosi, um, specifically in the fact that our opponent in this campaign, we say I say our Congresswoman Charles opponent in the election, um, really thought that Congresswoman Charles was just a pawn of Nancy Pelosi, even though we know that um, she voted against Nancy Pelosi for the role of Speaker of the House um, twice now, right? Because she uh, did it the same did the same thing in this past uh, couple weeks ago. Um, anyway, so I, I just wanted to bring up that anecdote. Uh, if you at all paid attention to the New Jersey 11 uh, race, you'll probably pick up on the fact that uh, Mikey's opponent used Nancy Pelosi's name on pretty much every mailer, every flyer, basically just tried in every way to tie Mikey to Nancy Pelosi, which was a very interesting thing that was different from 2018, where it was really more campaigning based on merits um, and based on qualifications versus 2020 campaigning off of uh, a record and also trying to correct misinformation about that record. Also, yeah. you just reminded me when you were talking about like the Nancy Pelosi thing, because I know we were all watching the De- Mikey's debate at home, her first debate, and somebody counted. I don't remember who on this call. Somebody counted, and it was a lot of times. But I was so proud during that debate to be interning for her the whole time. But my favorite part is when she's in her office and we're all watching the live stream, and she pulls out a printout of our her opponent's NRA report card. 
And I like I had never been more proud to be an intern for her. It was just incredible. So like even though there were some really tough moments, like we talked about before, it's nice to have moments like that where just it's like it's not like political per se. It's just genuinely this is the truth and you can't hide it or paint over it or whatever. Another random side note about that debate. I also love the story about um, one of our bosses literally raided Mikey's house the day before and collected random artifacts that were patriotic or related to her military service and just put them in the background in the office somewhere. I just love that story. And I think it's really funny. Yeah, you know, going off of Sienna's point, I definitely agree with that like sense of pride. Because uh, again, with like, everything that went on this past summer, Mikey still felt like a candidate that we could believe in, you know, and she did have, you know, this incumbent advantage and she didn't have an opponent in the primary and uh, her opposition was interesting. Um, I don't know if I can come up with a better word for it, but it's still, I still feel like we were so committed to the election um, and to making sure that she got to go back to Congress and continue to implement these policies that were really gonna help people. Um, so even the fact that we were sitting there in front of our computers and making phone calls all day, every day, uh, but we were doing it with like a true purpose in mind. Um, and that we were really we were really committed to having her win and we're gonna be committed to having her win in 2022 as well. Yeah. So now I want to kind of talk about, we're all young people. Sienna being the youngest of us. Um, and so I kind of want to go back to something that Bianca talked about a little while ago. And I want to talk about kind of youth engagement in politics and in campaigns specifically. Um, and something that we saw a lot um, in the past couple of months in the 2020 um, election, we saw a huge rise in like social media engagement and more informal social media engagement between politicians and like the people and between young people as representatives for those politicians trying to engage with other young people. Um, and I think that what Mikey's team did, including Bianca and myself um, and Stan, I think, did a really great job of trying to make that whole, all feel very genuine. Um, but I'm wondering if, um, Bianca, you can go ahead and start since you um, were really involved in this uh, group, but if what you feel is the best way to use social media and how to make it feel genuine for politicians and for young people that are receiving the content? Yeah, um, well, I do think that like making the account was amazing. We had a Twitter and an Instagram. I think I would have done things differently. Um, like in my opinion, I think to stay relevant, we should have posted more, um, more frequently, like um, daily or posted on the stories more or something. But um, especially with this campaign and with Mikey's district, um, it's such a, pur a purple district. It's um, and everything that is coming out of Mikey's mouth or related to Mikey has to be vetted like so thoroughly. We all know our communicate the communications director. Um, so she basically had to see everything, um, everything um, related to the post before it went out. So that process took time um, on top of her other work that she had to do. Um, so I understand why we couldn't post as frequently as we probably should have. Um, uh, I think that what we did do was great, um, but yeah. Going to Emily's point, and this is going to sound kind of pretentious, so just please bear with me for a second. Um, I think that there's a certain, like there's only a certain extent right now where people can feel genuinely connected to their representatives just because of I'm not going to list everything, but everything that's happened, you all know. Um, I think people have, we've talked about it, just really stopped trusting the government. And getting on social media is one way to start getting them to connect. But I think connecting and trusting are two different things. And without trust, there can't really be a genuine relationship with your representatives. So I think that the social media is like a great first start. But I think it's got to be just a little more comprehensive than that to kind of get that relationship back. That's my pretentious rant. And I think there's a fine line with with this trust and comfort argument. Like we all watched with the hearing um, for the OMB office, uh, Senator John Kennedy was trying to make a, a pop culture reference to the office. Um, 
where if you pardon my French, he said, well, you basically called Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut, which for those of you who don't watch The Office, that is a Dwight Schrute, Michael Scott thing. And we all kind of just looked at each other and we were like, Senator Kennedy, with all due respect, you're quite old. And the fact that you're quoting The Office and trying to seem personable to the people, like Twitter had a field day with this. So I think there's this like fine line everyone has to like walk with social media and politics as we learned with Trump and Twitter that like you can't have much older senators like John like John Kennedy quoting the office at people because it it doesn't sit well. It feels very uncomfy. And using it too much like Donald Trump, I think we really saw that kind of fine line with John Ossoff when he got on TikTok. And I, I didn't see it, but I know a lot of young Georgia voters loved the fact that John Ossoff was on TikTok. And I think that really helped him out. So I think if we really want to look at that fine line, we should take something out of John Ossoff's book and be like, okay, so how do we not gaff like John Kennedy? And how do we not turn into Donald Trump where you use Twitter to the point that it's not effective? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really great point. And I think um, kind of, thinking about social media in the campaign world in general, a lot of us are really big fans of a Twitter account called Organizer Memes, um, which is kind of, uh, it's a Twitter kind of collective for um, organizers or people in politics. And they have really created this very innovative way of interacting with politicians and interacting with campaign staff and like bringing all those people together. Um, and again, a lot of this is coming out of this like new digital worlds that we're living in where we're doing everything all the time on our computers um, and we're building these like relationships through Twitter. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that into the conversation as well. And John Ossoff's TikTok was amazing. It was so good. And John Ossoff uh, interacted with organizer memes on Twitter frequently. Um, and so it kind of helped to make, I don't know, I don't I felt it was genuine, um, but it kind of helped to make him seem more of like a personable, normal person who just also happens to be running for office. Um, so that's a really interesting conversation to bring up. Also, um, Bianca's point about trying to filter it through communications is so important because we, while we wanna post anything that we want all the time, that kind of time that we have to take to make sure that it all makes sense definitely does kneecap its effectiveness at like, you know, doing witty and cool responses to current events. Um, so how do we how do we balance those two things? I'm not sure, um, but I just want to touch on that as well. To quote Pod Save America, um, the United States has a very short collective memory. So there were definitely days where it was like, oh my gosh, we should post this meme or this video. But then by the time it got like vetted by comms, it was already like irrelevant. Um, I guess an example of this, though, this wasn't on the campaign, like the Bernie Sanders meme after the inauguration, like that was literally like a two day thing. If you posted after like two days, like it was kind of irrelevant. Yeah, and trying to trying to teach old people about memes is uh, difficult, difficult. Um, but bringing young people onto campaign staffs to run those social medias and be a little bit more kind of effective at creating social media that is um, relatable to the teens and to young people, I think is really important, which brings me on to my next topic that I wanna talk about, which is um, how campaigns can best engage young people to work on campaigns um, and like what that relationship between young people and campaigns should look like. Uh, kind of how it looks now and how it looks moving forward. So Mia, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think um, even though most people that work on campaigns as interns are usually teenagers, early 20s, um, I feel like one of the best ways that many of us got engaged um, in the 2020 election was with the intern teams, how 
first of all, you kind of already have a group that of people that you're meeting with every week. You get some friends right off the bat from there, which really just gives you something to look forward to. Because as much as like knowing you have to do a certain amount of calls for the campaign every week holds you accountable, I feel like, especially for myself personally, like I wanted to go on to the Zooms every day to make those calls because I got to see my new campaign friends on the Zooms every day as well. So it's really just another way to, I guess, kind of build camaraderie among the interns as well as the uh, competition aspect. I know we had among the teams, how they were kind of competing to see who could be the most engaged, make the most calls, which I'm a very competitive person. So I loved that aspect of also getting a lot of the younger interns engaged. Um, I'm giving them different projects, the leadership opportunities of the intern leaders. Um, and then once I left the campaign before the big social media push really came on, but that seemed like it was a really great way as well to kind of get the younger interns involved in making videos and stuff like that. So if someone that was more involved with the social media wants to speak on that. This is a cue for me to talk about my salt cap video, if I ever heard one. Um, if anyone doesn't know, the salt cap is was a part of the 2017 GOP uh, tax reform, and it basically disproportionately hurt uh, NJ11 rents because if you don't know, it's very expensive to live in New Jersey, and it capped the deduction for uh, property taxes at I think it was 10,000. Um, dollars and a lot of property tax in New Jersey is a lot more than that. Um, so Mikey fought really hard on this issue and she actually got a bill to pass in the house, but then it just kind of died on Mitch McConnell's office. Um, that was back in 2019. Oh, it didn't. Okay. I'm wrong. JK. Um, whatever. She did get a bill to pass though. I'm right about that. Um, sorry, Emily, I'm messing up your audio. Okay. Um, pause. All right. Um, so basically, I made a video explaining the salt cap. It's like a minute video. Um, I think it has more views than we had followers on that account. Um, and I got a lot of um, positive feedback for that video. So it's really fun. I'm friends with another intern um, named Sylvie. Shout out to Sylvie, who uh, attached a wheelbarrow to her bike because she's 15 now. And at the time she was 14 and she can't drive. And she filled the wheelbarrow with signs and she, and another intern named Edie, who she's friends with drove around like upper Montclair on this bicycle contraption, putting up yard signs in the rain. And like, that is like, that was loved. That was beloved on social media. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of these examples are so good to show that like, even though young people can't vote, they wanna be involved in politics and they wanna be involved in campaigns. And uh, as, soon as, as soon as campaigns make it accessible for young people to get involved and to be involved like on a higher level. So beyond being an intern, you know, involving um, young people on, on communication staffs and in organizer positions, you know, once you make those jobs accessible to young people, young people will come and they will do those jobs and they will do them really, really well because they're committed. You know, people, young people are committed to these issues um, and are educated and are like ready to get going, you know? And I want to give a shout out to Bianca on this one because Bianca, we convinced Bianca to add on a second major. She originally was not a double major with political science. And we all convinced her because she came on the campaign kind of she went I think you can talk more a little about it but from what you've told me you went to one Mikey town hall and you were like hey this seems cool and you like got up you got to be on the Twitter account for Mikey and like you then became an intern and we convinced her to change or add on another major and it's all it's the fact that like people like Bianca I'm, I'm really hyping her up here had no intention of going into politics before joining the team. And now she's double majoring with political science. So I think um, just opening the door a little more for people like Bianca or just people that are just so disengaged that they're like, well, maybe if this looks kind of, kind of fun, I'm like, or just give them the opening to see what it's like to be on a campaign, what it's like to be in politics, I think will really, will really help. I also think not to get too into it, but I think a hard thing is a lot of kids 
uh, want to like get paying jobs when they're in high school. And a lot of times interns aren't paid on political campaigns. So I think that kind of boxes out some kids as well, which is tough. Absolutely. And we are going to, I mean, I'm probably at some point going to do a whole segment at some point about paying campaign interns, but um, thank you guys so much for your lovely insights. Um, we're kind of coming up to the end here. So I'm going to go on to my last segment, uh, which is the insane political story of the week. And I have a personal preference that just happened for my insane political story of the week. But before I do it, does anybody have any contributions? I have a feeling that Mia's going to steal mine. Okay, well, I feel like this is a really good one for me to share. So as I mentioned, I'm a student at the University of Texas at Austin. We had a crazy, unprecedented snowstorm earlier in this week. Um, our, all our classes, even virtual classes, were canceled this week. Um, we only got about four inches, but much of the state has been without power. Um, I now actually don't have water in my dorm. We're on a water boil notice. A lot of the local restaurants haven't been able to open. The streets and sidewalks are still covered in ice. Things are crazy here. But our um, Senator, Ted Cruz, took a little trip to Cabo with his daughters. Um, the state is falling apart, but um, I'm glad he got his vacation in in Cabo because that's really what he thinks is so important right now. Um, but seeing all the work that many of my fellow UT students have done to help each other out, whether it's sharing water, buying food for people, um, it has been really heartening to see what a lot of my fellow students here have been doing to help one another out when our senator could not care less about anything. So it's been an interesting week here in Texas. My favorite part of the Ted Cruz story, uh, just today we're recording on Thursday night, he released a statement saying that his daughters wanted to go on vacation. His daughters are 10 and 12, I think. His daughters want to go on vacation. So he's like, okay, I'll just like take you on vacation with your mother and then I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to Texas. It's a pandemic. You can't you can't be going on vacations at all. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your daughters want to go on vacation. Also, just Ted Cruz throwing his 10 and 12 year old daughters under the bus. Dude, what are you doing? Ted Cruz just gets worse and worse every day. Anyway, hook them horns, right, Mia? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hook them, baby. Okay, does anyone have any other contributions? for any insane political stories that they read this week. This one is definitely takes the cake, but I mean, what a crazy, what another crazy week in politics, just in general. Um, hopefully Texas gets power again. I really am nervous for you guys, but you know, we, we will all survive and we will all go on to address climate change and the fact that Ted Cruz is a bad politician. We need to get him out of office. It's coming up. We're all we're all focusing our sights on getting rid of Ted Cruz. Mia, we're coming. We're coming to get rid of Ted Cruz. Um, and with that, we are at the end of the show. I am so grateful to have all of my friends be here with me today to talk about campaigns and all of the crazy stuff that we're getting up to in our poli-sci degrees. Um, so. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a great week. And thank you to my friends for being here on the show. Uh, and I'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.